having those human connections and people that know your story and know what you can bring to the table, know your personality and know you're like interesting to talk to, like it really goes a long way. It's so easy to kind of get sucked into the digital ecosystem. And there you are just another data point. You're just another resume. And it's like, it's the human connections that really help you stand out. Hello, hello. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm your host, Puneet, with my co-host, David. How's it going, David? Pretty good. Nothing really new. We recorded (laughs) a day ago, so unfortunately, (laughs) you heard all my updates. Anything else new with you? (laughs) No, it's snowing right now here in Chicago, so it's beautiful outside, you know, seeing fall colors, seeing the snow. Yeah, first snow here in Chicago, but definitely not first snow overall since I've been in Minnesota for a little (laughs) bit. But... Today's episode, we go into a conversation about sustainability, about biodesign and the intersection with material science with our guest, Aaron Nesser, who's the principal and founder at Keep Earth Company, which is a consultancy for early stage companies related to green tech. I just wanted to see if there's anything you wanted to highlight before we get into the episode. I just think Aaron is a super knowledgeable guy, and I think that he gave a lot of insight into what it's like starting a company, what skills it takes, what it takes to be successful, and just his overall thought pattern is very telling that he's very focused, he knows what succeeds, and he tries to apply that to all his roles as he's had multiple. So I think that just hearing about his journey and about what he thinks about uh, was very valuable. Yeah. And he also shares advice for material scientists as well, because he's part of a, I guess, a company or an organization called Biodesign Jobs, which connects scientists and engineers and all kinds of roles to the biomaterials industry. So he, he shares advice of kind of, you know, how to put yourself out there, how to tell a good story, just super valuable advice for any of our listeners. And he even kind of shares his vision for what recyclability looks like in terms of materials and the products themselves 10 years from now in an ideal world. So a lot uh, we discussed today um, and a lot to look forward to. Um, If you like the episode, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It would really help us out. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. So in today's episode, I am very happy to introduce Aaron Nesser, principal and founder at Keep Earth Company, consultancy for early stage companies with earth or green tech at their core. So a few years after earning his bachelor's in ecology and evolutionary biology, Aaron earned his master's in industrial design from the Pratt Institute in New York. He has been in the garment space for nearly a decade with experience ranging from designing spacesuit tech to co-founding Keel Labs. And if you're a keen listener, you may recognize Keel Labs from one of our previous episodes where we were joined by the VP of R&D, Dr. Chris McKeel, a few months back. So with Aaron, since his time as CEO and CTO at Keel Labs, Aaron has moved on to start the Keep Earth Company, where he leverages his entrepreneurial experiences to help green startups succeed. Uh, Additionally, Aaron currently partners with Biodesign Jobs, where he helps connect job applicants with biodesign-driven companies, kind of similar to what we try to do here at It's a Material World, where we connect MSCs to material science companies. And so back to Aaron, his experiences are varied and unique, and we're very much looking forward to our conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Aaron. Happy to be here. Thanks for that introduction. 
you've been uh, in a lot of different industries and fields, aerospace, composting, smart textiles, wearable electronics, seaweed-based fibers, and now even consulting, to just name a few. So I think most of us would worry about even switching from one of those to another. Could you walk us through your thought process and kind of what led you to pursue such a journey professional past? When you say it like that, it makes it sound like I may have planned all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really just sort of following the tangencies from, you know, where you are, you know, and, and seeing the, what do you want to come next, right? So I, you know, originally studied biology because the sort of like key theme in my life ever since I was a kid, it's been around environmentalism and sort of sustainability, climate change, things like that. That seemed like the most rigorous study in that space at the time and worked in agriculture for a little bit, then into composting, which, you know, sort of just like moving from biology to agriculture to composting, that creates a line, but you wouldn't expect to move to make a big jump like that, I guess. But it was just, you know, one step at a time, just shifting and shifting again. So when you say that it's just taking tangencies and taking step by step by step, is there a common theme every time you do make a change or what goes on when you finally do decide, okay, let's pivot? For me, it's very much been this process of discovery where I'm looking to solve a challenge. And usually it's a, you know, like I said, a common theme around like climate change and environmentalism. And my experience has been thinking like, oh, I think I can solve it here. And then I get into it and I'm like, oh, actually, I need to go back a step. And, you know, I've told this story before that I was working in composting and recycling and learning so much about organics recycling world, the textile recycling world, metal, glass, plastic recycling, and kind of realizing that it rested on a knife's edge. Like if the prices for resin shifted a little bit in the wrong direction, the whole system sort of ground to a halt. And so I said, oh, well, maybe we can use product design to sort of make this whole recycling process easier. So I left the recycling world, went to study product design. And as I was studying product design, I realized, wait a second, we don't actually have the choices to choose what seemed to me like the right materials. So bio-based, biodegradable materials, something that you could, maybe we can talk about this later, but make monomaterial products. So products that use the same material, but You've got rigid on one side, elastic, adhesive, like one material that can provide multiple different uses. So it was really just kind of like tracing the problem back step by step by step. And like where I am now is more supporting founders that it's like, okay, if we want these materials to scale, they have to be able to fundraise more effectively. And so that was a big challenge I faced when I was CEO at Keo Labs. And so I'm just trying to solve that problem one step back, like constantly one step further back. I love that. And from the founders that we've had the opportunity to interview, it definitely seems like funding is kind of, it's a known challenge, but it's kind of unknown how to do that super effectively until you're, you get that hands-on experience doing it for the first time. But I, I want to tie this back to the material science aspect, because you've touched on it a little bit, you know, your backgrounds in terms of your degrees are um, in biology and industrial design. So how were you able to kind of get up to speed in the field of material science? And what sort of areas within MSC have you immersed yourself in? How did I get up to speed? I It's so much just talking to people who know more than me. <laughs> so 
you know, it's like kind of putting it out there that I'm interested in this thing. And I remember early on, one of my best friends, it turned out his mom was actually, you know, had spent like decades in material science working in this specific field that I was interested in, which was marine hydrocolloids, hydrogels, basically the the sugars and carbohydrates found in seaweed. There's a few of them and you can use them to make different gels and gels of different properties. One of the most, I guess, well-known spaces would be agar for petri dishes. So it's like using that as a growth medium. That is a biopolymer, basically a sugar that comes from seaweed. And so I kind of put it out there that I was working in this space. And my friend was like, hey, like it turns out my mom is like one of the (laughs) most knowledgeable people in the field. Like you should talk to her. And, you know, got a conversation going and kind of like I remember her just like blowing my mind with like all this knowledge and making some suggestions to say like, hey, why don't why don't you try this or that? And once you get the ball rolling, you know, it's like I was able to go back to her for more introductions and more advice and, you know, kept digging into the research and you find more people and you just ask them questions, especially for people early in their career. It can feel daunting to, you know, approach a stranger, you know, to ask those questions. And I found, you know, regardless of who they are, you know, famous authors even that I've been able to reach out, say, I love their work, have this, I have this question and almost every time get a response within 48 hours. People get excited when you like their stuff. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So Aaron, I'm curious then how you balance doing the research yourself and really digging into it yourself versus surrounding yourself with people who are more experienced in in an area where you might not have that experience. How do you balance the two? Obviously, in this case, right, like there's almost a shortcut where when you kind of put it out there, which is great advice, kind of just putting it out into the ether of, hey, I'm doing this. Um, If you know anyone who can maybe help or share some advice, that would be great. And they can provide some resources to look into. But how much time did you personally put into learning about the field versus then also finding people who might be able to like pursue that 100% so that you can focus on something else or something bigger picture when let's say starting a company or, you know, I'm just curious about that balance. I was very much like all in on the sort of self-teaching discovery. And, you know, as I would find people, like anytime I found someone who was more knowledgeable than me, I was like, I want to talk to you. But the the jump to say like, oh, I'm going to hire you. That was a much harder jump to make. Because, you know, I think there's this process of starting a company where it's, you know, it's just you and your co-founders. And no matter how hard the task is, you have to figure it out. It's like you're limited by what you can do to the best of your ability. But once you get over that first bridge of fundraising that, you know, that whether it's grants or, or venture or, you know, whatever you're doing to bring in a certain level of, of cash, then you, it's like, the door opens to bring in people who are immensely more, you know, more qualified, smarter, more experienced than you are. And that's really what I can kind of tinker around over here. But it's like the first chemists and material science that scientists that came into the team radically transformed what we were doing. We like to say a lot of innovation happens at the edge of a few fields, never just like one. 
that we've done a lot of discovery. And now when we combine different fields, that's where a lot of innovation occurs. Over the course of your background, where have you seen that bio and industrial design has merged with MSE and have really led to a large discovery or an opportunity for growth? Totally. I see things very in a very similar way where we're kind of used to being all in our silos and, you know, in material science or in biology or in design to push the field forward takes a ton of time and energy. And it's just like you're just making a dent in the the knowledge, our global knowledge base. But kind of between those silos, there's this, these big empty spaces where if you can make a bridge across disciplines, there's just incredible potential. And so I think, you know, no matter what field you're working in, there are incremental advances in any field. But when you're able to connect, you know, really form that bridge, there's tremendous opportunity for, you know, for personal growth, for career growth, and for innovation and, and business growth as well. This might lead into getting more into the material science of it all, but can you kind of touch on from your your research and your experiences talking with other individuals, specifically the biology and industrial design, like how that has complemented the material science space. And, you know, that might lead straight into discussing kind of Keel Labs and the founding of Keel Labs. But can you kind of just talk about the complement between those three fields and your background with material science as well? I will give it my best shot. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> when I look at all three fields and a company like Keel Labs, and there's so many bio-based material companies out there right now that come to mind, there's like this piece of bio-inspiration or kind of like bio-sourcing where if you didn't understand the organism, the polymers that it can produce, the life cycle of the organism, and the, even the waste products of processing it, you don't have visibility on the opportunity to use it. But at the same time, without the design piece, you may not see the route to its end use. Without the material science piece, you don't have the bridge to get from kind of that biology space of study and understanding to commercialization, where I think really the design piece is incredibly helpful. But it's, I don't know, it's just again and again, just there's different ways to connect all the dots. But I think material science is this very unique, what I like to say, interdiscipline. It's an interdisciplinary, but it's like, let's call it what it is, an interdiscipline that really has incredible power to connect between something like biology or chemistry and design and commercialization. And so I wanted to dive into Kelson. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. Kelson. So I, I wanted to dive into Kelson, which is the seaweed-based fiber that's Keel Labs' current product. I imagine that the goal behind it was to kind of shape the sustainability space in, in the textile industry, right? Um, and potentially combating fast fashion was a, a component of that. So can you describe your mindset and Keel Labs' overall mission and vision when developing this seaweed-based fiber calcin product. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll just put the disclaimer out there. I was there in the beginning of Keel Labs. I left in December 2022. So it's been just under a year since I've sort of been at the table. So I can't necessarily speak to everything currently, but more so in the sort of early years, just very much like sort of this anchoring idea of in the beginning, it was a shoe. Can we make a whole shoe or, or a whole garment out of 
one bio-based, biodegradable, compostable material. And in the beginning, it was like we were looking at a whole bunch of different biopolymers that we could get off the shelf. And right, the big question was, is there a monomaterial product out there? And what materials can we make to create that reality where mono, bio-based monomaterial products are possible? I'm just curious, since you are such a core founder of the company, on your journey, how many times did it come down to the end? Like, I'm not quite sure this is going to work. And I guess maybe could you talk about how you process, yes, this is a very hard challenge. Yes, no one's really done this before. We have to fight. But at the same time, because no one's ever done this before, technically it could be like not sustainable or not actually that profitable or something of the sort. Could you walk us through that kind of mindset? I would say that's the big scary part of of starting a new company, like any new company, there's this, you can't see what's over the horizon. And I don't know if I could speak to your direct question, but it's, for me, it was having this mindset of just not knowing and finding comfort in the ambiguity and the not knowing and, you know, saying, we're going to keep going in the direction we think is right and hold on to our ideals and we'll find the best version of this material and the best application for it. And I bet there's like an element of just enjoying the process and the learnings that come from it along the way too. Oh, incredible. Yeah. There's a lot of power in that as well. Honestly, I after going through this whole process of like kind of starting from scratch to growing to a Series A company, I've never learned so much in such a compressed amount of time. You know, you could compare it to, you know, school or work, but there's so many questions that need to be answered from from the material science perspective, but also from how do you organize a company? How do you plan years out in advance? How do you budget? And all these elements that when you're in a established company, you usually don't get exposed to. But when you're starting it from scratch, you have no choice but to figure it all out. What skill do you think would have been the most helpful for you to have at the start of the journey while you try to figure out how exactly to get your company off the ground? I mean, I think the core skill that honestly we had, it could have been better, but we had it from the beginning was storytelling. And I read recently that I'm probably going to misquote this, but that facts that are told as part of a story have a 20x higher retention rate. So if you hear a fact in a story, you're more likely to remember it. And I know as a scientist and even as a designer, my tendency was to kind of tell a story in facts not to tell a story about facts. So I think a lot of what I said in the beginning was lost, kind of in the minutia of like how the technology works, you know, what we're going to do with it, and kind of forgetting the more human scale story in starting and growing a technology, a company. And I think especially from the early scientists and engineers and everyone in this field, this is like a, a common theme where we, we tend to focus on the nuts and bolts of a problem and forget about the human story behind it. And that human story ends up being so incredibly powerful for, you know, it's like convincing, you know, your team to follow a certain path or, you know, bringing in funding from venture capitalists and learning how to tell those compelling stories is absolutely critical. It makes your education go so much further. And so before we dive into kind of your 
role in terms of consulting for venture capitalists, you know, biodesign companies. I just wanted to get your advice on how you learned that storytelling skill or how you developed it. Because I mean, you're, you're totally right in terms of what you see get passed down from generation to generation over the years. It's stories, you know, sometimes in the form of songs, it's just easier to kind of internalize and memorize. So obviously you're not singing to when you're, you know, going for funding or anything. Well, maybe you are. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I I don't know. I don't know. But do you have any advice for kind of developing that that storytelling skill set? Advice for developing storytelling for that skill set. It's there's so much out there, honestly. And I wouldn't say I am a good storyteller by any means. I would say I'm passable at best. But (laughs) gosh, there's just so many resources out there just on even reading any novel, any movie, even a YouTube short has a storyline in it. And the best advice I could give is to just to think of those like media experiences as research. And even in a in a 10 second youtube short you get a beginning a middle and end you know they'll start off with a cliffhanger that sucks you in and sort of you know play out this story in miniature in 10 20 30 seconds and all of that follows the same pattern going into the work you're doing for consulting for venture capitalists something that we really haven't dug into much of the show. It sounds like you're focusing more on storytelling, but for other people and working on helping them gain funding by getting them attention. Could you maybe describe your day in a life as a consultant? And then maybe if you have any case studies that share how you can leverage more technical skills such as MSc or your biodesign to be able to help you with your job. Sure. I'll say the, you know, storytelling is a, a piece of what I do. And it's really directed towards working with with startups to help them achieve their goals from a team cohesion perspective and kind of like telling the, you know, thinking about like, what's the headline in 10 years? And how do you work backwards from that on a yearly, on a quarterly, on a weekly level to, you know, say, okay, I want this to happen 10 or 15 years out. What do I do tomorrow, you know, to achieve that goal? And I think that kind of, you know, engineered planning, it works across the board. So if there's a certain venture capitalist that a a company may want to work with, it's like, how do we reverse engineer, not just that connection, but that funding announcement. And so I like to think of it in like these storylines and who's the protagonist, who's the antagonist, like what are the challenges that a company or a founder has to overcome? And once you write that story, it's like, you can make it play out in real life. And there was a second question that you you started to ask me, and I I'm going to ask you to repeat it. So I'll take a break for the editors. And can you describe a day in a life as a consultant? And like you said, you can plan out this big story on a day to day. What are you doing to help them get to their goals and help them succeed? On the day to day, it's you know it's checking in, and it's hard to describe it as anything other than coaching. You know, there's lots of sort of tactical planning and advice that I share and we'll work with founders and companies to say like, okay, for example, like, you know, we're planning a fundraising campaign. There's like a ton of different tactics that you can use that aren't really in the books about fundraising to speed up the process. And, you know, it's just like create a, an environment where investors are seeking out a company. And I think very much you can create the same type of environment if you're a job seeker rather than 
being the one applying to a hundred different jobs, you know, kind of turning the tables to have companies seek you out. And, you know, one of the most powerful tools there, and I, I'll talk about a few tools here. One of the most powerful ones, you know, it's like they're all revolving around story, but it's, it's just press. And from a, of course, you see like TechCrunch, BuzzFeed, it's like there's all these different places where you, where you read things in the world. But there's so much happening on LinkedIn right now that it's like publishing like short pieces to say like, hey, I'm here. This is what I'm interested in. This is how I speak. It gives, uh, you know, a company might go into LinkedIn because they need a material scientist for that knows the biomaterials world. And they can search that. And if you're posting about it, if you're putting your thoughts out into the world, they can find you. And so that kind of, I don't know, just make yourself discoverable. And so that's what I, I'll advise, you know, job seekers, that's the same advice I'll, I'll give to companies as well. Yeah, it's been interesting to kind of, even just through this podcast, right? And just, you know, naturally meeting people, you know, we've gotten few job offers or, hey, if you're ever looking for a job, like hit us up, you know, just, just purely by having those conversations. And same with LinkedIn, I've seen it uh, multiple times, people who post on LinkedIn, they kind of just set themselves up for success by gaining that visibility. So that kind of leads into my next question. You know, you mentioned, and we've talked about your role in terms of connecting scientists and engineers to the biomaterials industry, biodesign jobs. Can you walk us through your vision for the space and why exactly a better connection is is needed between job seekers and hiring companies uh, in this space specifically? One hundred percent. I can remember back to you know the hiring process that we would go through and you know how challenging it could be to find people that who had worked in what we were doing. I don't know if we ever really found anyone that had the experience, the specific experience in what we did, because, you know, we're doing something new. So how many people can you expect to find out in the world that know how to do what we're doing? And I think from the, you know, from the job seekers perspective, how would they know to look for us? Because we're doing something different than what they've done in the past. I remember we were always looking for people that had worked with marine hydrocolloids, you know, it's the, the polymers we were working with, or had worked in wet spinning, which is the the basic technology that we use, the equipment that we used, very similar to the viscose or rayon production equipment to, to make those fibers. And in terms of bridging that connection, I saw these challenges in hiring and I was thinking like, okay, is there a better place? Like we had one option, which was going to a recruiter and spending tens of thousands of dollars on those services, or we could go to a big job board and get flooded with applications, like hundreds of applications, many of which like had no relevance to what we were trying to do. And it got me thinking like, maybe there's a space for something in between, something that, you know, is a little more specific that can, um, you know, because it's more specific, it can be cheaper, it can be faster kind of just like fits the niche of biodesign and bioeconomy companies. So that's when I had, you know, I had this idea to create something like biodesign jobs. I typed in the URL, found out that it had already been created. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but through a few conversations, it's like, you know, common theme here. I found out that Jess Smith, who started biodesign jobs, actually also went to Pratt Institute and had been, you know, we actually had known each other. We had overlapped for a year. And 
so I was able to reach out and say like, Hey, like, can I join this thing? And she was like, yeah, of course, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's cool. Yeah. But it really just like in this kind of like occupying the space of like, can we, you know, we want to bring people interested in the bioeconomy together. And we do that just like about writing and posting about it. And it's like, hopefully we bring in some, some VCs, we bring in some founders, we bring in some job seekers and create this environment where everyone who's interested in the bioeconomy and biomaterials can come together here. Going off on a little bit of a tangent from there is that I think that you've made it very clear that storytelling and conveying messages and getting your message to the right people is very important. And so we wanted to dive into the product or company messaging side of things about sustainability. Uh, I think it's very important that your communication is very clear about the benefits of your product as usually they're a premium on the market or they're new and don't have the brand awareness. And so we wanted to hear your thoughts about how is the most efficient for the information sharing? Like you said, you don't want to like tell facts, you want to tell a story. And then also, how do you think we can spread the message in the most efficient way through social media or other methods? Sure. I think when it comes to, you know, telling these sustainability stories, you kind of have to think about two different tiers. There's the kind of the surface tier that can bring someone in kind of almost like the, I'm so tired of using the word sustainability, but I don't know what other used to, what other (laughs) word to use, but like a sustainability hook where it's like, whether it's climate, whether it's like plastic free, you know, what is the sort of key feature that you can offer with your material compostability? But then making sort of below that hook is, you know, it's like you kind of bring the receipts. And so it's making, whether it's an LCA or whatever sort of documentation, like a technical specification for the material to say like, yes, we can hit these performance requirements and here's the, here's the supply chain we use, or here's the biodegradability. You know, it's like you have to bring the tests that back up what you're saying. So kind of a two-tiered approach, like hook in the, you know, maybe it's the materials buyer and bring the receipts to to back up your claims. I say that because most people aren't interested in the receipts, <laughs> <laughs> but you need, it's like, you need the people who are, you know, sharing that with them. They can kind of give their personal seal of approval. And there's so many kind of like rating agencies out there with different backgrounds. And, you know, I think about like recyclability standards the bars there are sometimes so low that it's like, oh, this gets the stamp of approval because it has 50% recycled content. I'm wondering, you know, it's like until we have someone giving a stamp that says 100% recyclable, we have to look to individuals to to talk about that stuff, to point us, point us in the right direction. So I think one really interesting point is I did an internship in this area. And when we were talking about products, one big key aspect was it was for single use products. It looks just like plastic. If you're doing your job correctly and making a reusable or recyclable or green alternative, and it performs just like regular plastic, then it's actually very hard for the consumer to know, like, is this green? Is this not? And so I think that When you're talking about getting the message out there and having these stamps or other messages, I think one place you can look at is social media or other like more mass media markets. How do you think marketing like sustainability of the products works on social media now? And as we grow more and more evolved 
in this space. How do you think the future will look like over time, like displaying the message to try to grab as broad of an audience as possible? Mm -hmm. So I guess on the the materials themselves, talking about the materials themselves, there's, we've kind of gotten into the space where the stamp, right, is the, is the thing to do. And if I kind of step back into my product design hat, I don't know. I don't know how to step back into where if I put on my product design hat, (laughs) the, the word indicators comes up and it's, it's like, what are those, you know, the, the highlights on a product, you know, maybe it's a, you know, an orange blaze or a, a metallic element that draws your attention and says like, this is the part you touch, right? This is the button you push. I think that there are so many other sort of levers to pull from that respect where you have texture, you have color, you know, you can look at a material and kind of, you know, get the vibe of it. And I think if we're, we don't want to stay on this track of just producing clear compostable plastics that look exactly like PET. Like that's going to lead us into a more convoluted space. It's going to increase the entropy of the system. And I, I'm always thinking about like, what are those maybe less, less perceptible ways of indicating that a material is, you know, bio-based, compostable, recyclable, and kind of lead the user without saying like, recycle this in the compost, like don't print it, like say it in the material itself. Like visual cues of like, hey, this is recyclable, right? Absolutely. Visual, textural indicators that it's like, you look at it and you can tell where, what its end of life looks like. Yeah, I know Washington, I believe, was trying to pass legislation to make green the only thing for recyclability. Uh, There are steps that we can take both legislatively and socially. What do you see the future being? I guess in 10 years, in a perfect world, how could we convey perfectly to the user exactly what to do? That is a a serious ask. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think you know, from my perspective, I see the the materials world being very much bio-based, especially for, you know, consumer products, especially kind of, I, I don't want to say single use, because hopefully there won't be such a thing as a single use item in 10 years. But when we're thinking of things that we, you know, we pick up and get rid of more frequently, that should all be bio-based. And it's the, yeah, really the, like the look and feel of a product, you know, like, just like you could tell the difference between something that's made out of plastic and wood, like building in those types of indicators to materials where it's like, you can, you've got this, you know, disposable cup and you can tell it only goes in the compost. It's like, it's so freaking obvious. And that's like, that's texture, that's color, that's opacity. Maybe. I just wanted to. Thank you for for joining us today. You know, I really like that discussion and I think it gives us a lot to think about too. You know, that is that's not an easy question to just answer in, in a few minutes, but it gives listeners and us a lot to ponder, right? And then think about when kind of designing for the next 10 years, especially in the sustainability space. So maybe to wrap up the episode, just wanted you to kind of share your final bit of advice. What do you think our listeners or, you know, who are potential job applicants, what should they do to really distinguish themselves right out of college or in their early portions of their career? I know you've already touched on just continuing to 
put your name out there, voice your thoughts. For example, we've talked about writing on LinkedIn, but if you want to add on to that, or if you want to share something different, maybe that's how we can wrap up this episode. Totally. You know, number one advice for folks like looking to break into any field, really. And it's like, whether that's a career transition or to starting work for the first time is really just like, put yourself out there, whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, connecting and talking, it's like, there's all these awkward networking events out there. It's like, there's a sense that it's going to be uncomfortable. It's often not. And it's like, everyone there is, is looking to meet other people. And it's just like, those are the connections where it's like, you see people on a human level and they may be in a position in years, but they might be in a position in weeks to recommend you or hire you. You just never really know. And having those human connections and people that know your story and know what you can bring to the table, know your personality and know you're like interesting to talk to, like it really goes a long way. It's so easy to kind of get sucked into the digital ecosystem. And there you are just another data point. You're just another resume. And it's like, it's the human connections that really help you stand out. And so I'll maybe just give a, a short plug for biodesign jobs. Right now, this is a job board that focuses on biodesign driven companies. So anything sort of from food to materials to fashion, using biomaterials or developing biomaterials. This is a, a place to come if you're interested in working in the fields. And that applies for you know folks in material science. I think that that is the mo- one of the most in-demand roles for biodesign-driven companies. Like we'll also occasionally post stuff for digital designers that focus on you know services for science and biology companies. We'll occasionally you know put on like an accounting role. Like if you're an accountant and you want to work for a biodesign-driven company, like you can find a role here too. So yeah, check us out. We're biodesignjobs.com. We're on Instagram. We post jobs there weekly. Uh, We're on LinkedIn. And we're actually on the cusp of launching something new, which is going to be called Material Factors. And within this, there is, we've got, you know, there's news, there's articles, but there's also a number of databases for things like vendors that understand the space. Like if you need a lawyer and you're a biodesign driven company, this could be a place to go. If you're a designer and you're looking for a certain material, we've got over 150 vendors that can supply you materials today or in the near future that all sort of like exist in the biodesign space. So that's going to be launching soon. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. It's a really cool ecosystem you're building. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us today. For our listeners, be sure to check them out at biodesignjobs.com. I hope you all have a great rest of your day. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process 
as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.